0: Go, 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 go. Hello, good evening, good day, everybody, and welcome back to the Ask Abhijit Show. It's been a while since we did this. This is going to be the final episode of the year. It's been quite a year, and we have quite a year coming up ahead as well. So I hope you're all doing very well. And in the coming year, 2024, there's going to be a lot more of these interactive live streams, the Ask Abhijit Show. We're going to do a lot more of these, and we're going to have a lot of possibly impromptu live streams as well. So we'll see about that now let's see who all is there on the live chat let's see who all is there i can see bye bye sg indo-aryan harshit badoria lone ranger Melwin really now geopolitical dubai have a nice day rahul 2004 guru vinshu guru vishnu kura Z Zion sami baheti tejo meg harpreet singh shushrut takur Pavan kumar Singh base strictly south africa south african Srijan <laughs> Panikar, Vaishnav, Ajay Kumar Akula, Vanshika Patidar, Deepak Singh Rajput, Forum Kacha, GK Joseph Stalin, <laughs> Shivraj Singh Rathor, Monish Sabrinath, Prath Raj, <laughs> Totan Chaudhry, Anushka Angampalli Nikhil, Volcano Manish Chaudhry Siddhant, Banot Komal, Chinmay, Martian, Thread Ripper, was Pachi. Yes, indeed. Surya Pavan, Shashank, Higde, Riddick, Tyagi, Amman, Vakil, Shekhar, Yasir, Akash, Dixit, Shivam Singh, <laughs> Panik, Iran Yeager, Dillon, Tejo Meg, Shubham Adhikari, Saurabh Badoria. Hello. P.S. Really now Rahul Chinmay. Who else? Kenneth Tan from the Philippines. Hello, sir. Technical Advisor, Salman Souza, Guru Vishnu, uh, Shubham, Dillon, Shravani, messi sg raj bora dr jay shankar supremacy hello hello sir hello ma'am <laughs> uh vedansh varun ahwan melvin and in lots of people cyan Ripper, jasmine raj singh okay i'm gonna stop greeting everybody revti Jite, raju ratan Naban, nabanita das okay let me stop greeting everybody that was, uh, that's what i'll do all day so okay uh i won't be able to greet all of you individually but you have My greetings and thank you so much for being on this live stream. I really appreciate your viewership and your support. So, with that said, let's get into the questions. I can see Rajat Chupra as well. After, yeah, good to see you. So, let's get into questions. Let's get into questions. You have questions, you ask me now, and I will start taking those questions. All right, let's see. Let's see. Let's take this question. Okay, geopolitics. There's a lot happening right now. There's a lot happening in the Middle East. There's a lot happening elsewhere as well. Lone Ranger says, What do you think our response should be regarding the Houthi attacks? Look, it's something that does affect us, right? The Houthi attacks. Uh, Okay, so that we understand what's happening, we go to the map. The map is our best friend. So where's the map? Let's find the map. Here is the map. One second, let's put that on the screen. Here we have it uh let me bring it to a different place so that it's yeah here we go so this is the map now we're talking about the houthi attacks right so where where is this happening so it's happening in at the intersection of the red sea in the gulf of aden this is a choke point called the Strait of bab al-mandeb okay there are these very important choke points that are extremely critical in geopolitics i'll tell you what these are one is the strait of gibraltar you see this choke point here between the uh, atlantic ocean and the mediterranean sea that's an important choke point then you have the suez canal it's a very narrow canal so that's another choke point then you have the strait of bab al mandeb here okay between the gulf of aden and the red sea there's the stra- the, the strait of hormuz between the Sea of Saurashtra and the Persian Gulf, and then you have the strait over here, the Strait of Malacca. These are the most important, vital, critical geopolitical choke points because you, you, you do something over here, you choke off traffic, shipping traffic over here, you're gonna bring much of the global economy to a halt. Okay, so what's happening is that the Houthis, the Ansar Allah faction of in Yemen who have been at the receiving end of for a decade and a half of uh, you know, a war that is primarily done by Saudi Arabia on the behest of the US. Right. And also by the US. So they have been fighting these forces for a decade and a half. And I have a very interesting podcast on this channel, a podcast with Dr. Isa Blumi, which goes into detail about uh, the situation in Yemen and what's what's been happening there. Right. So the Ansarullah faction, uh, who are based most likely in southern Yemen, they are—they uh, have decided to choke off this this uh, strait, the Strait of Bab al Mandeb. What's here? You go, Bab al Mandeb Strait, and uh, they have uh, missiles. They have drones. They have attacked Israeli ships. They have attacked uh, possibly other ships as well. Possibly, I'm not sure. Israeli ships, definitely, and they have said that they will only allow Russian ship, ships to transit through this place, through the strait. And this is an extremely important strait because much of the traffic that goes, the travels between East and West passes through this strait, and then it goes through the Suez Canal. So if you choke off this strait, Egypt is going to take a huge hit because much of the economy depends on the Suez Canal and the global economy will take a huge hit. So then ships, uh, you know, container ships, transportation ships, cargo ships will be forced to go all the way around the, the Cape of Good Hope, like in the ancient days, and that's going to increase costs and it's going to increase the costs uh, everywhere. So that's the deal. So that's what's happening. That's what the Yemeni Houthis are doing. They have choked off this Strait of Bab el and The U.S. has sent a task force, a couple of uh, aircraft carrier uh, task forces they've sent Uh, to to bring the situation back to normal, but let's see how that goes. As as of today, it's still a work in progress. And uh, right now the the Houthis are successfully choking off this strait. So the question is, what about us? What should we do about this? Look, uh, it does affect us in India. Okay, Uh, much of the shipping much of let's talk about oil okay every nation depends on energy and we are buying uh, oil from various sources including russia and much of this russian oil that we are acquiring comes through this strait of Bab al-Mandeb but if it comes to russian ships it's going to be fine because the Yemenis uh, the the houthis won't block won't uh, you know target those ships if it comes through other ships then the the houthis could target them so it could affect our uh, energy supply right oil supply all so that that's that's a problem we could face and if that happens prices could eventually go up to a certain extent in india prices of normal regular commodities right because oil uh, powers transportation and transportation it affects the price of commodities tomatoes onions and whatnot right standard stuff so it could affect us right uh so that's the deal so what should we do look uh, even though it does affect us, and it has the potential to affect us, uh, this is not our fight. From India's perspective, we have to be very clear, this is not our fight. We should encourage the sides, both the sides, whatever sides are uh, involved in this, to come to uh, you know some kind of understanding, some kind of agreement, some kind of uh, resolution on the negotiating table, over a meal, over a few drinks if they want to, <laughs> instead of fighting it out. We should encourage them to do that, but we should not get involved directly in this matter because it's not our fight. It's, be between, um, it's between the West and the Yemenis. The Yemenis, the, the Houthis, the, they have been at the receiving end for, for a long time. I'm, I said a decade and a half, it actually goes back to the 1970s, the 1980s, even before that. So uh, this is an anti-imperialist uh, force, the Ansarallah faction in, in Yemen and they are fighting the west and they are uh, showing what they can do and obviously they have they are supported by iran they have iran support and it's not just verbal support like we we in india we love verbal support oh somebody said something nice to me and that's support that's not support they have material support most likely from iran so that's the deal so I would say that we should, from India's perspective, we should encourage both the sides, all the sides to come to a peaceful uh, agreement some, and, and a cessation of hostilities. But we should not get involved directly in this matter at all. Even the Chinese are involved and they're sitting there and, and watching things happen. They have a few ships in this region. They have uh, the Chinese have. naval base in Djibouti okay I've shown this in the past where the naval base is is located I'll not do that again because it will take too much time but there are a few Chinese ships also deployed warships that are deployed in this region and they have ignored distress calls from ships that have been hit by the Houthis so uh the the Chinese are, are essentially just sitting and watching and they're enjoying what's happening because it kind of helps them so that's the deal right now so my simple point is India should not get involved directly in this matter we should encourage all sides to negotiate maybe facilitate negotiations if possible but not more than that because it's not our fight all right okay let's take a different question we took that uh bye bye says is Dawood dead look i have no idea (laughs) there are reports of all kinds that come out in the media. Uh, that, that the, the terrorist Daoud was uh, poisoned apparently by, by some by someone uh, but there's no official word on it because uh, you know his whereabouts have been pro- he probably has been residing in Karachi but you know there's no photograph of him that's come out for the past 20-30 years so there's been this very tight uh, clampdown on any information that comes out regarding this particular terrorist okay who is sh- sheltered and harbored by Pakistan uh, in the past, there's been speculation that the ISI had bumped him off, bump, bumped him off because he was becoming a liability or whatever. Right? So we don't know. Is he dead? Is he not? I, I personally, obviously, only have access to information that's in the public domain. I don't have any access to classified information, so I can only say that I do not know. Maybe, may not, but uh, that's the situation, right? Um volcano says why is the american education system better than the indian education system <laughs> look today the american education system is going down backwards it's it's going to the dogs okay look at what's happening in harvard the dean or whatever she that lady is of harvard she has been caught red-handed plagiarizing, and she she has this long history of plagiarizing, going back to her student days, and, and yet Harvard is brazening it out and saying that uh, what she has done is right and there's something wrong with it. And let then it's, it sets a precedent that allows students to do the same thing and claim precedent that look, you exonerated this lady for exactly the same thing. So you cannot now accuse me of plagiarism. So everybody's going to plagiarize now. So and, and we know what's happening in the US, the education system is it is the root cause of this epidemic of wokeism that's uh, that's rampaging through the US, right? Uh, the education institutions have been taken over by the lefties and all. But look at it. Historically, the education system in the US was the, probably the best in the world because they had standards, they had high standards. Look, I I have done three episodes of the Ask Vigit show about the education system. What, what is wrong with our education system? Uh, I think it's episodes 28, 30, 32, th- somewhere around that somewhere on that episode number okay check it out i've gone into it in great detail the education system in india is is horrific okay what it does is that <laughs> the, think about what happened to srinivas Ramanujan. the education system nearly destroyed him he was a genius level mathematician one in a hundred years kind of mathematician and the education system when I mean, he they failed him in, in what? In English and, and some other subjects. And he used to get top marks, full marks in math, but he used to fail everything else. And that's why they said that, that, that he was good for nothing. They should they, they and that that was the colonial education system before 1947. And what do you think we have today? We have the same education system, nothing has changed. So the education system in India is designed to turn out clerks and peons. It's designed to convert bright, intelligent, curious young children really intelligent young children into zombies. It's designed to turn them into clerks and peons. It's not designed to turn out leaders. It's not designed to you know, uh, help the student rise to the fullest extent of his or her potential. The education system excels at seeking out and destroying talent and rewarding mediocrity. OK, uh, and in the education system in India, it treats the staff Okay, the employees, the teachers and, and the academic and non-academic staff as the true stakeholders and the students as simply expendable cannon fodder. The purpose of an education system is to treat the student as a stakeholder, not the teacher. The teacher's job is to bring out the best in the student and prepare the student for eventually becoming a bright, young, confident adult who can go on and and take, take on the world and change the world. OK, and serve the country and society. And we do the opposite of that. So the U.S. education system was better geared for that. I mean, we have so many fake subjects and fake courses in, in, in India. If you have a degree. In home science, if you have a degree in gender studies, in women studies, what are you going to produce after you get, the, get your degree? If I have a degree, let's say in engineering, in mechanical engineering, computer engineering, whatever, I know. What I can produce, you can produce something tangible for society. Once you have a degree in the humanities, some humanity or whatever, what are you going to produce for society? If there is this very popular uh, degree, right, English literature, so many kids and go and take this course, this degree in English literature. What are you going to produce after that? What are you going to produce for society? The education system is, is still. Nothing. Nothing has changed. It's still the nineteenth-century colonial British education system. We haven't changed anything, and we have this NEP and all that. Let me go. Not go too deep into that. Okay, which does reach really does nothing. It doesn't really change anything. Okay, so, so that's the thing. We're gonna need drastic, deep reforms in the education system to turn it for, to to convert it into a much better system. Okay, it's gonna hurt the so-called stakeholders who are the the. Academic and non-academic staff who have not performed anything for for, for a century and a half were simply rent-seeking and leeching of the system of the country of the society. Uh, so, deep major changes are needed, and we are nowhere to, to, towards. We have we have not taken any steps towards even beginning that process. In my opinion, and uh, yeah, that's my opinion. Despite everything that. Uh, whatever has come out in the in the public about the new education policy or whatever it it does nothing it doesn't really solve the real issues the core issues so yeah the education system in the us is actually designed to produce uh bright young adults who can really contribute to society it's not based on writing long essays once a year in your exam it's not about passing exams, it's about learning actual skills and and using those skills to contribute something valuable to society and the Indian education system is the opposite of that. So that's the deal and we need to change something about it. Uh, Aman Vakil says, please tell us about the naval mutiny. How did India go to India? What happened? Look, these are like three different questions I have spoken in depth about the Indian uh, the the naval rebellion of 1946 i have a couple of videos on this channel just go to the channel search for 1946 or or naval mutiny or naval rebellion and you will find at least two three videos on my channel in which i've gone into this in depth okay so i will not go answer this in depth here because i have done that just search for it on this channel and you'll find your answer what happened to subhash chandra was, watch my podcast with anujdar i've got how many three podcasts thus far with him on this channel uh Look, most likely, I, I am of the opinion that, uh, and I agree with uh, Anuj, that most likely the the person known as Gubna Mibaba was most likely Subhachandra Bose and he lived till 1985, most likely. And to understand why he was in, living in anonymity and all that, you need to watch the podcast because it's a long, uh, it's it's a complex topic, right? So, yeah geopolitical dubai says french president in and biden out how do i see it (laughs) look the americans have been trying to pressurize and squeeze india more and more the pressure is increasing increasing on india and it's all geared at disrupting and influencing the 2024 general elections in india okay Uh, they the americans would like to have to see a weak government come to power in 2024 in India and not the strong government of Prime Minister Modi. Right. They would like a weak coalition government to come in India so that they can then control India. There are lots of assets that they have within India. Let's just put it that way. I'm I'm not going to take names or anything. If you understand, you understand. What's what what do they say? If you know, you know, so they have many assets within India at various uh, levels, well, let's say, okay, without being specific or naming, naming anyone. So they would like those assets to become more prominent and to have a more prominent role in India's future. Right now, that's impossible because of the incredible popularity of Prime Minister Modi. So they are trying to pressurize India and create all kinds of trouble for India. So Mr. Biden had been invited, he had agreed. And that's why it was announced. That's why India announced it. And then you know what? What they've accused India of of of, of targeting uh, terror American U.S. citizen terrorists on American soil, terrorists who want to blow up India's parliament and, and blow up Air uh, in India planes. You know that Panu guy, uh, good good what whatever G Panu, that fellow who is a dual citizen of the U.S. and Canada. He is a terrorist, who is a U.S. citizen, and who is acting, who is actively uh, working. To harm India, and the US shelters this guy, all right, and they have accused India of uh, allegedly uh, attempting to assassinate, murder this this take out this guy on US soil. They have produced no evidence, obviously. They have made several statements and made accusations, but there's no evidence that's been forthcoming. And as a result of this, and and you also have the Hardeep Singh Nijjar thing in Canada and all, Uh, so. Based on this, they, they have said that the India has done crossed a certain line. Uh, what about Qasim Soleimani? What about Osama bin Laden, who the U.S. assassinated in Pakistani soil? What about Qasim Soleimani, who they assassinated on Iraqi soil? When someone acts against the U.S., the U.S. can kill that person anywhere. They even uh, killed their own citizen, Anwar al, al-, al- in Yemen. A U.S. citizen and his young son, his teenage son both US citizens, the Americans did that. So the Americans, for them, rules are different. For the rest of the world, the rules are different, even if this is true. I'm not saying it's true. This allegation that India targeted this Pannu fellow. right? So that's why the U- the world doesn't respect the US anymore, because it's a hypocritical double standards state. They have a certain set of standards and rules for themselves, and the rest of the world has to simply obey their dictates. There's no rule of law anymore. The so-called rules based world order is fiction. Okay so and and they would like to pressurize india more and you know what's happening in india's far east in manipur uh, i have i have a whole episode about that okay uh, so that's that there's that the manipur situation it's a geopolitical thing okay it's nothing to do uh, half of manipur at least half of manipur is under foreign occupation right now and the reason why we are not doing anything about this is that this may not be the right time and this the, these foreign occupiers of half of Manipur, uh, well, look at what they are seeking. Okay, a separate nation in Christ. They are fighting three nations, Burma. They're not even Burmese, by the way. Those those terrorists who are on Manipuri soil, who are squatting on Manipuri territory, Indian territory, are not even Burmese. They don't even speak the Burmese language or practice Burmese culture, by the way. They are from Yunnan in China, by the way. Okay. But so it's a complex thing. So there's the Manipur issue. Manipur is is in great pain right now. Then there's Kashmir, and there's new infiltration coming in from Pakistan, from Pakistan about Kashmir. And recently, Asim Munir or whatever the name his, is of the new uh, of the re, of the current uh, Pakistani Chief of Staff, Army Army Boss, he was just just last this week perhaps I think he was in the U.S. and he met uh, what's his name Blinken and he met Victoria Newland. You know if you know about if you know who she is you know wherever she goes, chaos ensues so that's the deal with the us so mr biden tried to the us whoever controls biden because biden is well he's demented he's no longer capable of taking care of himself let, let, let alone run a country so whoever is is behind the, the throne who is truly controlling the power in the us have decided to pull out Biden, so as to humiliate india okay but well and so So India went ahead and invited Mr. Macron. And he accepted. Because I'll tell you something, the French are the only nation within NATO, okay, who have a somewhat independent semi quasi independent foreign policy. And let me tell you a secret, they do not see the US as an ally or a friend. Okay. Uh, They they would like nothing more than to break free of uh, US hegemony. France is the only nation in Europe that has uh, a quasi-independent foreign policy, and they have a great amount of convergence of interests with India, and they are realistic and pra- pragmatic. They are the one nation in Europe that has most, more or less refrained from pointing fingers at India and lecturing India about various things that the US and Germany, etc., lecture India about. And another nation in Europe that is these days uh, becoming uh, more aligned with India is Italy madame meloni is, is a is the leader who is spearheading that so it's great that mr macron has decided has accepted india's invitation and he will uh, grace india's republic day uh celebrations it's uh it's going to be uh it's going to be something that uh, further enhances india france ties the relationship india will remember what the u.s has done and india will remember that france stepped in and 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 was, a, was willing to, to you know, graciously step in and uh, help India out. So this, all these things are going to have long term consequences. Okay, Long term means it's going to matter even 20 years down the line. One thing we know about India is that the Indian people are an extremely emotional people and, and Indians don't forget. Indians forget many things, but certain things they don't forget. And this is one of the things that India will not forget. So here we are. So I think it's a great thing for the India-France relationship. All right. Anurag says, who is next to Xi in China? Is there any chance that there are pro-Indian leaders in the CCP? Nope, 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 nope. There may be some certain moderate leaders, etc. Uh, Pro-India? Everyone's pro-China in the CCP, okay? You simply can't be, you have to you have to prioritize your own nation's interest and you will only be pro another nation if that is convergent with your nation's interest that is the simple rule of of geo, of real real politics of geopolitics national interest first nation first uh now who's next to she ah we don't know the chinese system is so opaque and uh and mr xi jinping is so paranoid that uh, nobody would dare to position himself or herself as number 2 and there's no herself there because all the leaders in xi jinping's inner circle are men so so yeah it's it's dangerous for a leader to portray himself or herself as a number 2 to xi jinping so we don't know who's next in china okay uh, as long as xi jinping holds on to holds on to power there'll be no number 2 and once whatever for whatever reason he's no longer in power whenever that happens there could be a power struggle and there could be some kind of yeah, chaos possibly in China for some time at least. Uh, so yeah, that's a deal, and I don't think there are any pro India leaders in the Chinese Communist Party. That's where we are. Okay, um, let us see other questions. Um, this is by Apma early Christian era killing lots of women and millions. What might take you? Well, yeah, that's recorded history. That's that's um that's history that's not really emphasized in the west, they don't like to emphasize that, but it's true look, 1500 years ago, the culture in Europe was a local manifestation of the culture in India You are the same gods, the same polytheistic culture, with different names so in various parts of Europe we had different manifestations, different local manifestations of this ancient Indo-European polytheistic culture Uh, let's go back to the map, where's the map? here's the map, let's go so here's the map now now look here Uh, let me, yeah so in the Slavic regions you had a different set of divinities in in Greece you had a different set of divinities which includes Anatolia today, Turkey uh, in Italy, you had a different set of divinities. In France, the Golic area, in 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 uh, present-day Spain, and in, in the British Isles and the Nordic regions, you had a different set of gods. But these were all the same gods, different uh, manifestations of the same divinities. For example, we have the god Indra in India, which is uh, who is the let's say the head of the chief of the Rigvedic pantheon of gods. Indra is known to have uh, um, two weapons: the Vajra, which is the thunderbolt, and the hammer, which is also called the Vajra, right? And the the god Zeus in in Greece has the same attributes. The god Jupiter in Rome has had the same attributes. The god Thor in in Scandinavia had the same attributes. The god Perun. In, in the Slavic parts of the world, had the same attributes, it's and so it's all the same thing, right? So, Christianity was imposed upon Europe by force. Let's understand this very clearly it was not something that was accepted by the Europeans willingly, it was imposed by force, and the uh, original culture was smashed out of Europe forcefully. Okay, there were the Northern Crusades and whatnot. It's in and read the what's, the what's the name of the book, The Darkening Age. You go to Greece today you go to greece today or go, go to rome and you will see that all the old temples of the old gods of the true gods are smashed if you look at the the statues the idols of those gods apollo or nike uh, artemis whatever these are all smashed the noses are broken the arms and legs and other body parts have been smashed out right so this was a violent process okay and then we know very clearly in india at least that women have a very exalted role in Indian society, at least historically it's been that way. The past thousand years, the the taint of foreign culture came into India and women had to hide in their houses and hide under the wheel, Uh, the wheel, V-E-I-L wheel, okay, let's not go into that. So before, before 1000 AD, the status of women in society in India was totally different from what it is today. Women had very prominent roles in society, they were respected probably more than most men. Uh, So that's the deal. And you had the same in Europe, okay? You had the same in Europe before Christianity came in. And women were the healers, women were the doctors, women were they, they played very important roles in society. So all this ancient knowledge of, of of herbal healing and whatnot, which we call Ayurveda here, and which may have its which may have had its counterparts in Europe, all of that was was the domain of of women, okay? And that was a very important role that women played in society and to smash the old culture out, the status of women had to be degraded. So any woman who had this ancient knowledge was then termed as a witch. Okay, you have any ancient knowledge, any knowledge that that, uh, a man would not have, then you're going to be branded as a witch. You're going to be burned at the stake and this happened over centuries there was this big witch burning spate in the middle ages the dark ages in europe a few centuries ago like i don't remember exactly when Uh, the second most popular book at at one point in time in europe was the maleus maleficarum the hammer of the witches which was a manual on how to identify witches and how to destroy them how how to kill them how to torture them to extract confessions and so on the second most popular book in europe was written by two christian priests two Christian priests, Maleus Maleficarum, okay? And so there was this reign of terror. So many women and some men also was, were accused of being witches and burned alive. And this persecution went in for centuries to enforce obedience, blind obedience and fear in society. This is an entire culture based on fear. The Europeans don't, they have lost their original culture. They have lost their original culture. It's been smashed out of them by force, and they don't—they don't even know about this. I say this on occasion, right? That India is a, is, a, is a society that suffers from PTSD as well as amnesia. PTSD is post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, Europe also has gone through that, and they have no recollection—excuse <coughs> me—of their pre-Christian culture. There is there are some movements here and there to to uh, revive that. Uh, I forget the Asatru is that religion in, in Scandinavia that they're trying to revive which uh, you know uh, harkens back to the old polytheistic religion and there is a Slavic revivalism as well paganism a little bit of that here and there people are trying and if you go to Lithuania Latvia etc there is some Slavic revival there and they don't have priests to offici- officiate uh, the, the traditions because the rituals so they often <laughs> they often Invite Indian Vedic priests to do that for them. Well, what does it tell you? It's the same culture. It used to be the same culture. So to destroy this culture, they, they, you know, brutalized the society in Europe. They destroyed all the temples. They destroyed the great tree Yggdrasil in in Scandinavia, the tree, the the tree of life, uh, and so on. So it was a brutal, brutal, violent process. And like you say, millions of women were murdered just for having ancient knowledge. There we go. Okay. Okay, let's take some more questions. Dada says, will the book culture get into India like the US and destroy Indian families by increasing single mothers and other forms of non-marital relationships between couples, Couples also LGBTQIA plus zeroes, whatever that is. It's a, It's a big threat. It's a big threat culture, okay. I believe in diversity, but what form of diversity do I believe in? I think the world is a beautiful place because of diversity. You go, you travel to different parts of the world. You, you, every new place you go to, you encounter a new culture, a new way of life, a different culture, a different way of life, and different traditions and different people. And that's what makes the world beautiful—the diversity. I go to Vietnam. This beautiful local culture local cuisine local traditions wonderful to see I go to Indonesia a whole different set of you know traditions culture way of life I go to uh, China various parts of China it's different I go to Japan they have their own beautiful way of preserving their ancient culture I I, I let's say I go to various parts of Africa I go to various parts of europe europe is a kind of a monoculture unfortunately because of what we just went into but you go to different parts of the world you find different cultures different traditions different ways of life that's what makes the world beautiful the diversity now when you try to force fit all this diversity into one place where that doesn't belong that's when you're going to have trouble that actually creates monocultures by force fitting diversity into a small country or wherever and that's what the west is trying to do they call it diversity but they're trying to actually impose a monoculture okay and uh, one of the best ways to do it is to destroy the fabric of society by destroying whatever people believe in by so that's what's happening in the us and the west most people are, are rejecting christianity and they're becoming uh, atheists and once you give up your ancient traditions even though it was an imposed tradition okay the old actual culture of europe like i said is the old you know european culture which was smashed out of existence but whatever moral framework they've had for the past thousand years the europeans is the moral framework of Christianity it is better to have any moral culture than to have a moral set of guidelines than to have no moral guidelines at all so today because of people rejecting Christianity for a variety of good reasons, I would say, assume. So because they've rejected that, they have no set of moral guidelines anymore to live by. And then it's easy to infect to them with this woke uh, mind virus, like, Gads- like Professor Gadsad would say, the mind virus, the woke mind virus. So, and if you look at US society today, I mean, single parents are the norm. Most kids grow up in the care, or so-called care, of their mothers, who are single mothers. Most kids don't have a father figure in their life. And, you know, lots of studies have shown that if, if a kid grows up in a single parent family, but that parent is a father, that kid has a very low, I mean, much lesser chance of becoming a delinquent, of, of going to jail and being criminal. But if that same kid grows up in a single-parent family that, that has a mother instead of a father, there's a very high chance of that kid going down the wrong path in life. That's just fact. Okay? Many studies have shown this. So in the U.S., most kids are raised by mothers. And you see what's going on in the U.S. Crime is rampant. Homelessness is rampant. Drug use. Everyone does drugs. Everybody does drugs in the U.S. It's, it's U.S. culture now. It's American culture. And uh, now, I don't know, Gen Z, Gen Z is the kids born after a certain whatever year, I don't know, 2019, whatever it is. I think 30 or 40% of Gen Z identify as LGBTQ+, plus, whatever the spectrum thing is, right? I mean, what? And now they're trying to export that nonsense, all of that assorted nonsense, the whole package to other countries and the great uh, uh advantage the US has is that they control entertainment. Okay, everyone watches Hollywood, everyone watches US uh, cinema, US uh, series, you know, those OTT series, whatever you want to call it. And, and it's, it's full of that. What's that new Game of Thrones thing, the rings of power or whatever? It was, I mean, I have not watched a single episode, but I've read the reviews. Everyone complains of the same thing. They have totally destroyed the story and they've tried to walk, everything and make everything diverse. So entertainment today in the US is about lecturing the audience instead of entertaining them. Entertainment used to be about escapism. Okay, I'm going to watch this movie maybe it's a two-hour movie for two hours I'll forget my life and I'm going to escape into a different world a different universe and today if you watch any movie you're not able to escape anything because they're going to lecture you they're going to lecture you about the woke agenda the message the message that they have to to you know impart so that's what disney is doing that's what everyone is doing so and indian kids they watch all this crap they watch all this stuff okay and that's coming into the, the mind space of Indian kids today. Look at Indian teenagers, they are also doing all kinds of nonsense, like uh, uh, premarital relationships, like, like have 15 different partners in five years, that sort of thing and uh, all that. So that mind virus is already coming into India. Okay. And if it succeeds in in taking root in India, it's going to destroy Indian society. It's going to destroy Indian society and it's going to be terrible okay so yeah it's it's something we as a society have to be very we first of all have to be cognizant of the threat this poses we have to be aware we have to accept the fact that it has already appeared in india this this problem and we have to take the right steps to combat this because this is something that is aimed at destroying indian society and destroying indian culture this is Something that's an outgrowth of uh, the Marxist, neo-Marxist ideology of uh, Derrida and Foucault, the French uh, so-called alleged philosophers, who uh, who then uh, became very influential in the West. And that's what the American academics, uh, you know, that took it forth from the 1950s, 60s onwards. And now that's all that's taught in the US. Universities and all. So, yeah, I think it's a huge threat, and India needs to be cognizant of this, and India needs to take measures against this. All right, let's see something else. Yours Kabi says, What's your perspective about being an atheist and being a rationalist? And the difference between these two terms. I don't know what's a, okay. An atheist person is a person who doesn't believe believe in God. Okay, no God. A rationalist is also most likely an atheist and rationalists they, they think about everything logically um, so uh, what's a rationalist somebody who uh, regards who views the entire world from the perspective of facts and logic and in scientific explanations so that's there's nothing wrong with that that's a good thing that's a good way of looking at the world look why does why do things happen They happen because of the laws of nature and because of human psychology when things happen in nature it's because of the laws of physics and the laws of chemistry and biology are also consequences of the laws of physics okay so if something happens in nature it's because of the laws of physics and not because of anything else as far as we know that's the best evidence that we have and when something happens in society it's because of the the forces that that shape human history geopolitics power human psychology and so on so you have to look at things rationally, and nothing wrong with that. Now, the problem with certain so-called rationalists is that they make fun of people who believe in God and people who are spiritual or religious and uh, all that. I mean, be it's, it's perfectly good to be an atheist. It's your choice don't believe, it's perfectly good. It's actually great to be a rationalist, look at everything rationally and logically. But uh, today, the people who identify as rationalists are the ones who will denigrate certain cultures and not other cultures. And they will, you know, do a token criticism of certain cultures once or twice, and then they will use that as the as the as the basis to the claim that they they are they criticize everybody equally. Uh, So from The proper definition of the term rationalist is a person who looks at the world through logic and through the laws of science. If they know science, I'm not sure if all rationalists know science, but they talk about science for sure. So I am also a rationalist, for sure. I look at the world from the perspective of logic, cause and effect, okay, causality. Uh, That's fine, but it doesn't mean that I have to also be an atheist. Right. The, The world is complicated doesn't mean that I have to be an atheist to be a rationalist. Uh, look, we understand next to nothing about the universe. We understand, we are able to see, observe less than 5% of the universe, less than 5% of it. Everything we see in the universe, whatever we is visible to us, whatever is measurable is less than 5% of what's out there in the universe. 95% of the universe is dark it's invisible to us and that 5% that we see we don't even understand that properly we don't even understand that properly so our understanding of the laws of nature is minimal, to say the least and to use that as the basis of your entire understanding of the world and to criticize others who have, may have a different path or different viewpoint, perspective I think it's a little bit too much, I would say okay, so that's how I see the world the the thing is this so i this is not a, i'm not this is not a, an observation about all so called rationalists i don't really know many of them but see truth is that the less you know the more certain you are about your convictions and beliefs the less you know the more you think you know everything and the more you know the more you realize that we know, actually know nothing about the world next to nothing about the world so that's my perspective. Okay. I do see the world rationally. From that perspective, I'm a rationalist, but I don't have to be an atheist to be a rationalist. And yeah, that's all I'll say. Okay. Uh, Kid Rhymes says, I've seen a podcast on Mr. Gandhi. I'm assuming it's Mr. Mohandas Gandhi. Okay. If these things are factual, then why don't people or the elite class of our country accept it? Look. Whatever I say, you can fact check it. If these things are factual, what kind of statement is that? Why don't you go ahead and fact check it? All the information is available in the public domain, sir. You can, without being a historian, without being a scientist or whatever, you can fact check everything I say. All the information is available in the public domain. Just do, you know how to do a Google search, go and fact check it. And then if I am wrong, you show the proof very simple so these things whatever i've said are factual they are based in nothing but facts reality historical records okay so why don't people why don't most of the people in our country accept it it's because of the education education system the education system in india teaches people to memorize what is written in the so-called textbooks, it teaches people to obediently accept what authority figures tell them. And the education system fails to teach the kids rational thinking, critical thinking. Critical thinking is something the education system doesn't teach our people. So our people don't know how to think they don't know how to fact check so then they simply hero worship because of the because you have been taught to obediently obey everything your teacher says for 15-20 years so it just becomes ingrained in you you can become conditioned like sheep so our education system produces generation after generation after generation of sheep obedient sheep who will simply obey Okay, so whatever a so-called great historian or so-called great writer says we are going to believe, oh yes, he said this so it must be true oh, everyone says so and so historical figure is a god so we are going to worship that person that's that's what it is, people simply don't think, people simply don't cross-check what's written in the textbooks and people are taught that whatever is in in the textbooks is infallible that is it, you don't need to know anything beyond that that's another thing the education system does it says, all you have to study is what's written in the textbook You don't look beyond the textbook. That's all. You don't do any extracurricular reading. You don't read other books. we are going to burden you. So we're going to overburden you so much with our textbooks, with our homework that you simply don't have the mental capacity, the mental bandwidth to read anything extra. And so you will see no other perspective. So that's why most people in our country, they simply blindly like sheep accept the official narrative. And when it comes to the elite class, well, that's a whole different story. Let me not go into that. I think you can think. All right. Um, let us see. Abhijit kamat says, should research institutes like the Indian Institute of Science be taken out of the Ministry of Education in favor of Department of Science and Technology or something like? Look, I would say that certain uh, research institutes especially should be given a full autonomy look and and you know um i have a pod i have two podcasts with professor gautam Raju. he is a very senior uh scientist chemist india's foremost chemist and he uh, works at the indian institute of science and i have one podcast in which we actually walk around the, the institute institute and we but he he explains the history and all that about the Institute. Very interesting podcast. I would recommend you watch it. Uh, and he did allude on camera and maybe at some other time also at the fact that the, the non-academic people, the bureaucrats who, can, who run the Institute, they are a little bit too controlling. And they, they and this is something that is not limited to the IISC. It's, it's, it happens across the board. So, typically in the Indian education system, in higher, in all institutions, including higher education, uh, the budget and all decisions are controlled by non-academic people, that is bureaucrats, career bureaucrats, who don't really even understand education, actually. Some of them may, some of, a few may, a few may. I'm not saying all are bad, but most of them are simply disinterested and they just want to control things because, you know, it gives them the sense of power, most of them, not all of them. Right. So look at something like Princeton, where uh, the Institute of whatever it was at Princeton, where Einstein, Oppenheimer and all, they spent a significant portion of their careers. That's a place where you can do whatever you want. Obviously, you have to be you have to be worthy of being accepted into the Institute. Obviously, only the best of the best were. Accepted in, in Princeton. But then they could do whatever they wanted. And sometimes it works uh, to the benefit of science. Sometimes it, it kind of takes over the urgency from scientists. So I think there should be some kind of balance system. And, you know, too much bureaucracy and too much uh, political, etc. Uh, paternalism is actually bad for research. Uh, one of the best models for doing research that has a tangible impact on the world is the US institution called DARPA. Which was founded in the same year that drdo in india was founded and look at the divergent trajectory that both institutions have taken darpa produces such incredible technology okay or much of it is classified and what they do is that they hire scientists they 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 identify scientists in the u.s academic system in the u.s universities etc who are working on interesting and useful technologies and they give them grant like proper funding, not like peanuts funding here and there, proper mega funding. And they give them two years or let's say two years. Okay, They give them a certain amount of time. Sometimes it's one year, sometimes it's two, maybe sometimes it's three. Let's say it's two years. They give them this X amount of money. They give them a time frame. You have two years in which to take this money, utilize it to bring your research to a fruitful co- completion. And if it doesn't work, no issues. That's a risk we are willing to take so it's not like if if the result uh, if the research isn't completed then there's going to be a black mark against the scientist. no in science certain things don't work out and that's what you have to also understand so darpa has a great model it has what how many employees 150 employees that's it it's a flat thing and uh, and lots of scientists work under DARPA, but they are they work independently okay their lives are not c- controlled by the bureaucrats in DARPA. DARPA doesn't have bureaucrats. So that's how it is. So that's a great model. I think we, we the model of that we use in India is this ancient, archaic, 19th century British colonial education system model that is applied everywhere, including to the best institutes. IISC is actually one of the best institutes in India. The best, the best scientific institute for scientific research in India. Uh, so, yeah, that's the thing. Be, it would be great if we can create, uh, give more autonomy to institutes like IISC, and it would be great if we could create something like DARPA as well. Uh, but DARPA, if, in any DARPA, would need to be able to fund scientists who are doing great work in India. And the problem in India is that in most of the universities, there's no, there's no real research that's happening. The scientists are only so called scientists. Scient- you know, a, You're not a scientist unless you're doing some active research and trying to solve a problem that hasn't been solved before. That's research, not recycling the same old nuclear, nuclear configuration. I took this nucleus and I deformed it to this extent. And now I have some new, new characteristics that I'll publish a paper on. What a waste of time. Okay, most of India's nuclear scientists, that's what they do. So that's the problem in India. Once you have a job in the the academic system, it's a job for life. And then you just pretend to do something. That's what most of them do. Not all. There are some genuinely great scientists, bright young scientists as well in India. No doubt about it. Okay. Across the Indian academic system, maybe in various universities, maybe in the IITs, definitely at the IISC. But most of them, I would say, are mediocre and good for nothing. Facts are facts. So yeah, it, this all needs to be reformed. We, we, there's this crying need for reform, but yeah, nothing is happening thus far. All right. Okay, today we have a lot of questions about education. Saksham Choudhury says, what should be the ideal education system? and How should the government implement it without having any propaganda, opposition or other intellectuals? First of all, the education system has to be about merit. Only merit, not reservations. And if you're gonna do reservations, you should give, do reservations not based on your so-called caste, but it should be based on your financial status. Kids from poor families should be given financial, uh, you know, financial support, and that's all. But once you, once someone is given financial support, then they have the money, and then their academic performance should be the only yardstick by which you you uh, you know progress in the academic system and in life. So reservations are a huge, huge, huge problem that's destroying the Indian education system, first of all, because if I if, if there's a kid who is part of the so what's it called, general category, then they have to get way higher marks than a kid in so, various reserve categories to get uh, get a seat in various uh, uh, institutions, IITs, IIMs or whatever it is, you know, NITs and universities. It's It's horrible. That's why everyone wants to leave this country because they feel that this country doesn't value them. They feel that this country gives them a raw deal. You know, it's not the Indian society that's doing this. It's the Indian system that's doing it. And the society is laboring under the system. And right now, because of various political reasons, it may not be possible to to abolish this thing called reservations. So that's where we are, right? So number one, you need merit in the education system. And then the education system should not go on for 20 years, 25 years. I think most people don't want a master's degree. They simply want to start working at the earliest. They find something interesting. Some people like cars and find cars interesting. So they want to learn how to make cars or repair cars or modify cars or whatever. Some people like computers. Some people like building big structures like bridges and roads. Everybody wants to create something, to contribute something to society. You don't need to wait till 25 to do that. You you know. Most of us want to start working at a young age. Why can't we have a system in which you are taught the basic stuff of life, life like basic history, communication in your native language and mathematics, which is important, arithmetic, not algebra, trigonometry. You don't use that in real life. So teach the basic fundamentals by the age of 13, 14. And by 15, you can send the kid as an apprentice with, with a salary, with certain conditions. You know, And it's only a few people who need master's degrees and all that. So the entire system is geared towards the wrong things. And they understand that the purpose of the education system is to create bright, young, confident, and capable, and highly skilled young citizens who can go out into the world with confidence and contribute positively to society. That's what's needed. The education system does the exact opposite. It creates these confused, non-confident young adults who don't know what to do in life. They are sheep they don't know how to think they don't know they don't have the ability to do to do critical thinking that's what the education system does in a country which has that sort of a horrific education system actually is doomed so that's where we are today and you know it, it's going to be difficult for the indian government to change this entrenched system because there are so many vested interests it's going to be really hard to do that but it has to be done so, you know you're gonna need supreme leadership to be able to do this let's see how it goes right now we have some reforms that are being done apparently NEP ep and all that doesn't inf- inspire any confidence in me at least all right all right all right education we have spoken about that okay this is a question i get every time like 15 times a day in the comments and all that is India t- planning to take back P.O.K. and C.O.K., Chinese Occupied Krishna? Do you think it's ever possible? It's possible it will happen, but we're going to have to be patient. P.O.K., see, Pakistan, like I always say, is a temporary nation. It's going to disintegrate when the time is right. It's going to disintegrate by itself. The best way to win a war is by, is by is without having to fire a single shot. You achieve all your objectives without having to fire a single shot and without losing a single man. That's the best way to win a war. Wait patiently and create the right conditions for that temporary nation to disintegrate on its own. There are a lot of internal forces within Pakistan that will make it disintegrate when the time is right. Maybe five years, maybe two years, maybe 10 years, maybe 20 years. I don't see Pakistan existing more than 20 years down the line. As, as the way it is right now. And when it disintegrates, TOK obviously will reintegrate with India. What about COK? It will take longer, perhaps. Okay, but you never know. So it's gonna happen. It's gonna happen. But we need to be patient. You don't want to start a kinetic war. You don't want to, unless you, are, you know that victory is inevitable. And even if victory is inevitable, do you want to suffer so and so amount of damage in the process of victory? Why not achieve victory without suffering any damage at all? So wait, be patient, India is growing, India is rising. If we play our cards right, and if we ensure that we are not embroiled in any major military conflict for the next 20 years, India is going to surpass the China. By the end of the century, India may even surpass the U.S. By the end of the century, but it's a long-term game. Understand that we are not a nation that was born yesterday. Okay, the nation was born in 1947. It was created in in this form as a nation-state in 1947. But we are the world's oldest civilization, and for us, 100 years is nothing. It's like yesterday. A thousand years is for us is a day be- is day before yesterday. So we have to think from that perspective, and we have to all contribute in our own way to towards doing that. So POK, COK, all that will come back in due time. Right now, let's try, let's let's focus on making India more powerful and stronger. The economy, the infrastructure, the education system, entrepreneurship, military, and so on. Let us all contribute in our own way, and that will set the process in motion. It's already in motion, which will eventually bring all these lost territories back to India. All right? See, we have lost a lot of territory. I've got the, the map over here, I'm looking there. Let me put it on the screen. We know what territories we have lost. Historically, what used to be India, I mean, Bharat, right? Bharat was this entire region from the Himalayas to the, to the oceans. And, uh, you know, in 1935, the Burmese had voted to not partition themselves from India. The Burmese wanted to remain a part of India. They had voted in favor of remaining part of India. And yet it was partitioned. So the British have broken India into pieces. So, you know when, when Chinggis Khan in the year 1299, uh, after his, his conquest of Khwarazm when he came to India chasing Jalaluddin the Coward what was the border between India and, and Central Asia? It was a pass in Tajikistan. So the border of Tajikistan was the border between Central Asia and India. In 1299 when Chinggis Khan came pursuing Jalaluddin the Coward and he obviously eventually defeated Jalaluddin in the Battle of the Indus in Punjab And then he returned back to Mongolia without ever setting foot, crossing the river, the Great River. So we have lost a lot. It's going to take time to recover our ancestral territories. Maybe it may not happen, all of it may not happen in our lifetime. So what? Our descendants will regain that. And that's what we have to work towards. So it's it's a long term process. It's not going to happen in our, all of it may not happen in our lifetimes. Maybe it will, but let's see. All right okay okay saint crocodile says for <laughs> when china attacks taiwan and if the u.s defends taiwan militarily what response should bharat have in if the u.s doesn't this defend taiwan what it may end up doing look we don't know when if when or if china will uh, march upon taiwan militarily. i mean a military invasion Uh, They have been wargaming various scenarios. We know where Taiwan is, I hope, yes. Here's the island of Taiwan. This one here. And you can see, I'm I'm sorry, the map isn't on the screen. Here's the map. Okay. So we know where India is. So let's orient ourselves, go eastwards. And here we have Taiwan. Okay, over here. So the Chinese have been wargaming various scenarios. scenarios by which they can invade taiwan and uh, recapture taiwan they consider taiwan to be a renegade province taiwan is a heavily defended fortress of an island and uh, it is an ally of the u.s obviously the u.s has a vested interest in not allowing taiwan to go into chinese hands so let's consider this hypothetical scenario that in year so and so maybe sometime in the future, near future, let's say, imagine, let's imagine hypothetically that the Chinese invade Taiwan. Okay, then it's going to be a big, big hot war. Taiwan is not easy to conquer. Taiwan has tremendous defenses. They are supplied by the US. They have the latest weapons and all that. And the Americans will do their best to not allow China to take Taiwan without heavy damage. Okay but let's say that the Americans uh, fail and the Chinese take Taiwan okay so the scenario is that China invades Taiwan so what should India do in that situation? well I would say that India should make sure that we secure the Maldives and Sri Lanka I'm I'm saying secure not invade I'm not uh, suggesting that we should invade and conquer Maldives and Sri Lanka I'm saying we should secure Maldives and Sri Lanka and possibly Nepal as well It will depend on the strength of the Indian armed forces, the Indian military strength at that time, whenever this hypothetical invasion happens and so on. Right. Uh, So, yeah, so if the Chinese take such a step, then India should also take certain steps to safeguard its uh, national and civilizational interests. That's what I would say, but it will all depend on a variety of factors, including the strength of the Indian military and so on and so forth. They just uh, says why were Islamic invaders not, why were they unable to loot and plunder India like the British? The, the British made India poor in just 150 years, but the Islamic invaders couldn't do the same thing in 1000 years. Look, the Islamic invaders, the Turks did not rule India for 1000 years. First of all, let's understand that. Okay, The process of invasion starts around 700 something AD with the invasion of bin Qasim, Muhammad bin Qasim in, in Sindh sometime in the 8th century, which was a, a temporary affair. Okay? And then the Turkic invasions start a few maybe two centuries later. So the process begins in the 8th century. And they tried and they tried and they tried, and they tried to invade India. They, they first took Afghanistan. Afghanistan was the first Kashmir. Okay, Afghanistan is the original Kashmir. Today you don't have a single Hindu or Buddhist there. It was a completely Hindu Buddhist territory of India, Gandhar. So this process begins about a thousand years ago. And it took them three, four hundred years to, f- to finally establish a so-called empire in New Delhi. And so you had the Delhi Sultanate, which ruled certain parts of northern India for some time. Then you had the so-called Mughal Empire, which was the Turkic Empire, which uh, was established in the 15th, 16th century. Okay, look up history. Don't I don't remember dates. I never remember dates because it keeps my mind free for other things, for thinking. So you can look up the dates. And then the Mughal Empire fell in the 1700s. So they were in power for what? 200, 250 years? That's it. Okay. And then you had various uh, Sultanates in the southern part of India. And you had Bengal, which was ruined. And today we have Bangladesh and so on. So they did not rule India for a thousand years, first of all. And when the Mughal Empire, the so-called Mughal Empire, was at its peak, they used to send tremendous amounts of Indian wealth to Mecca, Medina, and to Central Asia. And the amount of the number of Indian people they enslaved and sent to the slave bazaars of Central Asia is beyond number, is is uncountable. There are so many people in Central Asia and in the Arabic world who look very Indian. Why is that? You ask me. Because their matrilineal lineages will be Indian. Okay, I'm I'm sure you can imagine how that happened. Uh, so they did a lot of damage to India, the, the so-called uh, Mughals, the, the, the Turks. And if you look at the Indian GDP, okay, I, I don't have the graph right now in, with me, the Angus Madison graph of the past 2000 years. So the decline in the Indian GDP begins when the so-called Mughals had started ruling India and they had captured large parts of Indian territory. Right. And there's a significant drop in Indian population as well. So they did a lot of damage to India, but the British they elevated this to the next level. They did, I don't know, hundreds of artificial famines in India in 150 to years. years. Okay? They devastated India because if you are starving, how will you fight? So they killed off, I would say, between 100 to 200 million Indians through artificial famines. And they took plunder and theft to the next level. Nobody can match the Anglos in thievery, in theft. Okay, the biggest nation of thieves ever is true. So they they took it to the next level, the Anglos, the the British. So clearly they were better than the the Turks in, in stealing and thievery and in genocide as well. So yeah, they had a very systematic way of extracting all the wealth and resources and everything out of India. They built railways for that, they built ports for that. All the railways, all the ports, all the institutions they built were of the infrastructure of extraction it's not some gift they gave to india it was their infrastructure they built for extracting everything of value out of india and when they finally left india they did of their own volition not because somebody forced them them through non-violent means they left because there was nothing else left to plunder from india everything of value had been sucked out of india by that time so all the wealth that india built up over thousands of years it's all in the west today all of it and the west the the western way of life and and whatever wealth they enjoy it's it's been redistributed through complex methods across the west so yeah there you go all right okay again education why does the government spend only 0.66% of GDP on R&D on 2 to 3% on education? Will it increase in the future? Why doesn't the Indian government promote R&D? Well, that's a question for the Indian government to answer. Okay, I do not know. Uh, we definitely look, the education system is the key to the future of, of the nation of the civilization. So it really, really, really needs to be reformed. But maybe right now it's a, it's it's too much. I don't know. I don't know what the reason is. Maybe it's it's. Too difficult a task. Task right now. Maybe there it's it's politically too inconvenient. Maybe it's politically too. You're uh, gonna come up with a huge amount of uh, opposition. Look, you the government does anything good to benefit the nation. There's a huge amount of opposition to India, uh, to, to the to the to the move. You have the farm laws, and then there were these horrible protests against the farm laws, and the prime minister took those laws back okay even though there was no, no need for that but probably did the right thing at the time because all of these most of these much of these protests and all that resistance is organized and fomented from outside of India okay now if the let's say the government goes ahead and and does some genuine educational reforms something as simple as detoxifying the Indian textbooks, history textbooks. You do that, the whole leftist ecosystem will be up in arms. The entire anti-national ecosystem will be up in arms. And you're going to have a spate of articles and op-eds published in the West, accusing India, the government of India, of being fascist and trying to saffronize things and trying to, uh, you know, further hatred or whatever, whatever they allege. And that's going to, that's maybe a problem they don't want to take on right now. Maybe I'm just assuming, right? So uh, I, but R&D, well, you know, to have good R&D, you need good quality researchers. We have some very bright young people in this country, and we have some bright senior scientists as well. But I would say that the very vast majority of the Indian academics are mediocre in their good for nothing. The vast majority. There are lots of exceptions. There are some really bright people as well, really good people, really talented, dedicated people as well. But the vast majority are mediocre. Go to any Indian university and see what, just ask yourself, how do I feel in this environment? Yeah. So, so if you increase the R&D percentage of GDP, or the education percentage of gdp it's gonna get wasted at this point in time the first step is to reform the system and then you increase the funding that's what needs to happen you have a rotten system and if you fund it more it's going to get even more rotten that is the problem that is the problem uh so R&D, I mean tell me which indian university let's talk about physics and engineering and technology in which indian university is some great research happening Okay, IISC, there is some good research happening there, Indian Institute of Science. Apart from the Indian Institute of Science, tell me one Indian University or IIT where some new groundbreaking research has been done in the past 20 years. Please name one. No one's doing anything so what's the point of funding them you first need to reform the system get get rid of the non performers non performers bring in bright new young talent and then fund them that's the, the process that's a, that's the chronological step by step way in which this must be done and that's why that's why we have this otherwise it's going to be completely wastage of money total wastage of money all right All right, all right, all right, all right, all right. Let's see what else. FFF says, why has the U.S. forced its European vassals to accept millions of refugees from North Africa and the Middle East and destroyed that demography, but not its other vassals like Japan and South Korea? There is some demographic change happening in Japan as well, by the way. Okay, they are being made to accept certain flavors of immigrants right now. Without naming anything. South Korea... South Korea has lost its culture the majority of South Koreans are either atheists or Christians where's the South Korean culture left in South Korea Deracinated rootless youngsters in South Korea that's what you have and North Korea is a communist uh, atheist Nation so Korea has been dis- destroyed you know culturally culture is gone how many practicing Buddhists do you still have in Korea in South Korea So that's what's been done to Korea. So once you, you know, erase a nation's culture, you can control it in any way you want, especially when you bring in your culture, bring in this Western culture, Western religions into the the nation. That's how you can, you know what? One of the biggest national security threats is cultural and demographic change. So that's what they do. They engineer this. In Japan, maybe the process is beginning right now. When it comes to Europe, yeah, I mean, look at the videos that you that come up on social media recently in Spain, a whole army of young military age African males running across the border or whatever it was and, you know, uh, infiltrating into into Spain, it was a young, a, a large number, maybe more than a 1000 of young military age males, African males why is this being done you know the situation in France you know the situation in Germany you you know the situation in the Nordic countries Sweden Denmark Norway all that Uh, Italy I mean (laughs) what's what is being done right now in front of our eyes is that these nations are being destroyed and uh, it's gonna be impossible unless there is a it's gonna be almost impossible to to deport all of these infiltrators because they they're going to be made to integrate in some way within society without without actually assimilating they're going to impose their culture Uh, so that's what's being done that's what's being done to the u.s vassals in europe like you say you're correct and the objective is to destroy european society that's what it is i mean Demographic change is a national security threat. It destroys nations, it destroys culture. Demographic change is a threat to any nation's sovereignty, to its culture, to its cultural continuity, and to its demographic continuity. Why should a nation not preserve its culture and its demography? Why not? Why this forced so-called diversity? If they want to do it in the US, do it. (laughs) Why are you forcing it on other nations? That's what they can do. I have always said this, that there are only two major powers in Europe. One is Russia, the other is the U.S. And every nation in Western Europe is dominated by the U.S. Okay. So that's what we are seeing. And what we know what's been happening in Germany and all. It's, it's, it's a disaster. So these nations are being made to essentially commit harakiri. That's what's being done um bye-bye says macron monsieur Emmanuel macron of france is very left yes he's a leftist yes and he also allows migration so how can he be respected by modi excuse me what i don't care what he does in his country i only care whether his interests align with my interests i will respect anybody Whose, ally, whose interests align with mine and who will weigh, who will work with me towards strengthening my nation while also strengthening his nation or his interests. I don't care what he does in his country. That's his problem. That's his business. I don't understand this, this perspective. He does this, he does that. I don't care what he does. As long as his interests align with mine and he works with me, which helps me, I'm going to respect him. I'm going to embrace him. I'm going to hug him. I'm going to cherish him. What kind of perspective is this? This is the emotional perspective of Indians. Indians are so incredibly emotional. They don't see the world through a realistic lens. They don't care what it does. Look at the Americans. They prop up these various dictators in Africa. What do the dictators do in Africa? Horrible things. The Americans don't care. That's how geopolitics works. It's called real politics. Have you ever heard of Vishnu Gupta Chanakya? This is the nation of Vishnu Gupta Chanakya and we see such comments. I don't care what he does in France. He's good for India. So I'm going to respect him. Uh, It's not about respect, Baba. It is not about respect. It's about national interest. It's not about respect. It's about national interest. If someone's in national interest aligns with my national interest, he is good for me or she is good for me. And I'm going to work with them. What else does matter? does matter in the world. What else matters? France is all the way there. They have interest in the Indian Ocean region, which align with our interests. And they have another interest in and they want to break free of the US in some shape or form, eventually sometime in the future. That also is good for us. And they're willing to sell good technology to India. It's, it's a transactional thing. Sell, buy and sell. Okay, but other nations won't even sell. So that's good for India. So how do I care whether he's left or right or green or pink or blue? I don't care whether he allows migration and is being forced by the US to destroy his country. I don't care. He's good for me. I can work with him. Look at the world from that perspective, from a realistic perspective. Instead of looking at what religion they are or what, what ideology they believe in or not believe in, or what they do in their country, who cares? This is what I don't understand about Indians. That's what the education system has done to Indians. Indians don't are incapable of critical thinking, even though, though Indians are the most intelligent people in the world, so strange. That's what the education system has done to Indians. Think of the world from a realistic perspective and ask questions. Question all your assumptions, first of all. First of all, start questioning yourself. Start questioning your assumptions, then you will be able to think. <sighs> Uh, (laughs) What about China's next probable nuclear test, says Kuldeep? No idea. Look, I have no idea what's happening in China. China is a black box. Opaque. Okay. Very little news comes out from China, it's very tightly controlled, so I don't know. We'll see if they do do it. I can't speculate without any actual data, I don't have data, so I can't speculate. All right. Uh, Good question. Z Zion says, why are the Scythians classified as Iranians instead of Indo-Aryans? Who does this classification? Ask yourselves this question. Who does this classification? Whose classifications are we currently accepting as the standard narrative? It's Western historians. Everything has been created by the West. All these narratives, all these so-called accepted uh, mainstream narratives and all that, all of that has been created by the West. So the Scythians are classified as Iranians. The Scythians, well the best way to put it across is Indo-Iranians. But Iran itself was this tiny entity compared to India, geographically large, but population, uh, population density-wise very sparse. The Persians themselves are, are an offshoot of Indians, okay, who went westwards from India and settled down. Let's put the map on the screen in case people don't know what Persia is, I'm sure some people don't, which I don't blame you for, okay. So Persia is Iran. Today's Iran and historically Afghanistan, Pakistan was India, right? So, India and Persia were neighboring, uh, you know, political entities. Iran was a dotar civilization of India. Iran, the modern name is Iran, which has existed for less than a century. The actual cor- correct name is Persia. The people of Persia were the Parshwa people, the Parshwa rig- uh, clan of the Rigvedic rig- Indians, okay. And they settled down in. They went westwards out of India and they settled down in this region. And their capital was Parshwapur, which is now called Persepolis because we have to use Greek names instead of uh, indigenous names. So the Greeks called that city Persepolis. Today the Persians call it Parsa. Historically, it was called Parshwapur. Is that not an Indian name? Parshwapur, the city of the Parshw people. So that's the deal. So even the Iranians are nothing. Today, okay, today's Iranians are genetically somewhat different. Okay, because in the last two, three hundred years, there's been a huge Turkic influx into Iran and they brought in lots of immigrants from the Caucasus region. So today you will find lots of Iranians, not lots, but some Iranians who have blue eyes and blond hair. Some of them may even have red hair, some of them, a few of them. Okay, that's not the original Iranian look. The original (laughs) Iranian appearance was light brown skin, brown eyes and dark hair. That was what the original Iranian person looked like, right? Uh, So the Scythians were another branch of -of out-of-India migrants who ruled Central Asia for a couple of thousand years at least. Eventually, they they re-entered India through an invasion about 2,000 years ago. About 2,000 years ago. And that invasion brought an end to the Indo-Greek rule in northwestern India, in Gandhar and uh, Punjab. So the Scythians re-entered India as invaders. They were actually fleeing the Scythians. They were actually fleeing the Kushans, who were fleeing the Huns. Long domino effect over here and then they established kingdoms in northern and western India some of the Mahakshatrapas ruled in Saurashtra, in, in Gujarat and they were as Indian as anybody else even though they had come from Central Asia because they, their ancestry was Indian anyway so they left India thousands of years ago they ruled Central Asia for a long, long time and then they re-entered India and re-assimilated into Indian society and their culture was more or less the same as in Indian culture the Scythians were known to be sun-worshippers Saurashtra, what does it mean? The nation of the sun, Saurashtra, solar nation, Saurashtra, which is the peninsular region of Gujarat. So, the Scythians were genetically more or less the same as Indians, and some genetic uh, traits were picked up here and there, which is bound to happen when you are a nomadic uh, confederation that rules a very large area. But more or less, they were Indian there was no cultural clash when the Scythians invaded and, and conquered parts of India and started ruling over India. The Mahakshatrapas in western India, they were the protectors and servants of the great Jyotir Langa Temple of, of Sumnath, right? Until the sixth, seventh century AD. And then a different dynasty comes over. That's a different story. So, the, so this classification of Scythians as Iranians is a, is a western invention. Okay, Uh, they say that the Scythian language is is an Iranian language. Uh, So that's simply a Western classification. We in India, we simply blindly copy what the West says. And this applies to Indian academics as well, who themselves are not capable of critical thinking, they'll simply copy what the West says. And that's why we are taught that the Scythians are Iranians. They're actually Indo-Iranians or Indo-Aryans, which is correct. Which is correct, like like X-Zion says. z zion says here here (laughs) all right who else what else (laughs) girish says what's the current status current status of the russia ukraine war what's the current status the current status is that there's not much happening it's what's called slow war the the past year if you look at the 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 lines on the map from between the Russian, the territories are conquered by Russia and the territory still in Zelensky's so-called power, we, you don't see much movement. The boundaries are more or less static right now, there's some movement here and there, a little bit here and there, there's a lot of fighting happening and now the Ukrainians are forced to, to enlist middle-aged men, men in their 40s and 50s, even 60s. That's the new crop of of recruits into the Ukrainian armed forces. Even women are now being recruited, conscripted to fight in the war. Pregnant women. So that tells you everything you need to know. They have no youngsters left. The, The flower of Ukrainian society, the youngsters are dead. Males, men, dead. This entire thing has been a giant meat grinder for Ukraine. It has destroyed Ukraine forever, essentially. No men left, no young men left. Even the old men are being sent to fight. The Russians are perfectly fine with that. They have made it a point not to destroy Ukraine cities. They have not done what the Americans would do in a war, flatten entire cities. They have not touched the cities. There's been some here and there. But overall, there are, are, you will see so much, so many videos on social media of Ukrainian women partying in Kiev and whatnot does it look like a nation at war the russians have made sure they don't they don't do that okay so that's the situation the ukrainian war is lost from the Western from the western perspective okay it's a proxy war between the, between the west and russia and russia has succeeded and they're going to be patient they're going to wait another 2 years if they need to but eventually they're going to get their way i have said this since february 22 The invasion, the Russian special military operation ordered by Mr. Putin began on February 22, 24 in the year 2022. And I said Russia will win. And for the longest time, people were saying Russia is losing. Russia has lost everything. Russia has lost all its men. Russia has lost all. There's no more weapons left. Excuse me. What's going on right now? Everyone was saying that the West will win, that Ukraine will win. Where Where are those people today? I have said this from the day one that Russia is going to win this war. And now even the funding seems to have dried up. The Americans were sending, I don't know, tens of billions of dollars in, you know, on, a, on an ongoing basis to Ukraine. That has stopped now. It's over. It, when it is officially over, it depends to, remains to be seen. Maybe maybe in 24, maybe in 25, maybe in 26, Putin is patient. He's going to get his way. And Ukraine is finished. This person, Zelensky, has destroyed Ukraine as a nation okay Ukraine the borderlands of Russia the Slavic people that's what the nation means what the name Ukraine means that means borderlands whose borderlands Russia's borderlands it will go back to Russia okay and the western part of Ukraine will go back to to Poland Belarus or whatever we'll see about that uh Slovakia Hungary maybe, that's what Putin is willing to do but eventually Putin will decide the fate of Ukraine it's going to be most likely at some point in time in the future maybe in the next five years perhaps most of ukraine will be reintegrated into russia that's what's going to happen i'm saying this today let's see if i'm right or wrong okay karthik says there are multiple terrorist attacks how are we going to tackle this with reference to parliament attack and the jnk attack on the indian army look multiple fronts are being opened up against India in anticipation of the 2024 general elections. The objective is to create chaos in India and to make the current government look weak just before the elections. And who is doing all this? Okay, you think it's Pakistan who is doing this? You think it is some random group of primitive savages who occupy parts of Manipur who do this? Who is coordinating all this? Who is giving the leadership? You think a bunch of primitive tribals have the intellect and the leadership to to carry out a sustained, coordinated campaign in Manipur? You think these terrorists are just randomly coming in through through the LOC in Jammu and Kashmir? It is all being done in a coordinated fashion, okay? And we can ex- actually expect more of this. The Parliament attack, also whatever there was, yeah. So how are we going to tackle this right now? India has two choices. We wait for the election to get over. We play defense, we play defense, we play defense for the next six months. And we may have to absorb and swallow some pain in the process. But you know, you always have to think about the long term. You don't think of the short term. Sometimes you have to absorb some pain in the short term. And I think some people will not like what I say. But that's simply the way the world works. You have to prioritize your long term national interest. So I think that's what the government is doing right now. We will, for the time being, absorb. We'll play defense for now. We may absorb some pain if the Pakistanis cross certain lines when it comes to these terrorist attacks, we may retaliate and uh, disproportionately. But that remains to be seen what lines the Pakistanis are willing to cross. Uh, so my point is this is all being orchestrated orchestrated not from india's neighborhood but from far outside of india from far away from india's neighborhood okay there are certain powers that don't want india to rise there are certain powers let me just say it aloud the united states doesn't want a strong government to come to power in india in 2024 and i'm just saying that they uh you can expect more of this to happen before 2024 so right now there are a number of options for india first of all the simplest option is play defense absorb some some pain for some time after the election is done and dusted we will take certain steps the hammer will fall on yeah you know who east and west both sides the hammer will fall eventually where are you from why don't you accept super chats i am from another planet epsilon eridani why don't i accept super chats because i want to give everybody a level playing field long ago when i started this show the ask about show i had for some time for some episodes i had accepted super chats and then i dis- then i realized that you know most of my viewers are students and students are broke i've been there i've been a student students are on money and if i start accepting money to answer questions it's kind of yeah i mean it's not that's not who i am right and i want everybody to be able to ask questions regardless of whether they have money or not that's why i don't accept super chats. kush shah says what's your opinion on vivek ramaswamy very interesting guy uh republicans typically indians american indians are democrats blindly supporting the the Democratic Party but Vivek Ramaswamy is a Republican so is Nikki Haley. Vivek Ramaswamy is a super smart guy who has the right answers for every question who has the right arguments that can destroy any opponent and very interestingly he has consistently and repeatedly and always refused to criticize one person, Donald Trump. So I think Vivek Ramaswamy is playing a long term game. The actual target is 2028, the 2028 election. Right now, he will make a name for himself and he is very impressive and lots of people are slowly coming around to support him in the Republican Party, Uh, Republican voters. I mean, you know, people, citizens who identify as Republicans, they are more and more coming uh, around towards supporting him and having a very favorable opinion of him. He is taking a very principled stand. He's criticizing his own party uh, candidates like Nikki Haley, especially for being compromised and corrupt and all that. And he refuses to criticize Donald Trump. So the best possible result for Vivek Ramaswamy in the 2024 upcoming election is that he Donald Trump accepts him as his vice presidential candidate. So for 2024, Vivek Ramaswamy is not targeting a presidential run. He is hoping to be Donald Trump's vice presidential partner. That's how I see it. And he has a bigger prize for the down the line, the 2028 election in which he would want to run for president, the top office. That's how I see it. Very smart guy and uh, very popular among the Republicans, among the Republican voters. Okay, where are we? What else do we have? We already answered the question about the woke culture. Um, Even Lord says, do you think the U.S. will face martial law during the 2024 election cycle? Not sure about that. Martial law. I mean, U.S. is anyway an autocratic nation. What did I just say? The U.S. an autocracy? Yes, it's an autocracy. Do you know how easily you can be shot in the U.S. by cops? It's so easy to be shot by, by cops in the U.S. It's, it's anyway a nation that's crawling with cops. You take the cops away from New York City for 15 minutes, you're going to have riots. Just 15 minutes, I promise you. New York City is crawling with cops everywhere. You take them away for 15 minutes, you're going to have riots. It's a nation that functions because of an overwhelming police presence. It's already a nation under martial law. It's, and everybody has guns. Every, what can I say? So, will there be violence in the twenty-fourth election cycle? I hope not. Of course, I hope not. But who knows? So, yeah. Depends on what steps the two political parties take. Right. Hetel Katariya says, any recommendations for reading sources for a newbie interested in world history and geopolitics? Look, if you want to understand geopolitics, you have to understand history. There's no way out. There's no textbook of geopolitics. I have not read a single book whose title is geopolitics. There are no books on geopolitics. I will write one. Okay, that's down the line. Uh, there are no books on geopolitics. So the, the only way to actually gain an understanding of geopolitics, which is how the world really works, the only way to do that is to study a lot of history, world history, local history, and so on and so forth. So there are no books on geopolitics. That's answer number one. Number two, to start to really gain some kind of understanding of geopolitics, study a lot of world history, lots and lots and lots of it, because that's how you start understanding the cause and effect chain, causality. Why do things happen? How do they happen? What's there's a lot of human psychology in there. So what would I recommend for world history? I would recommend Will Durant. Will Durant, let me put that out on the thing. Where is the thing? Uh Will Durant will. The story of civilization. I think it's called a story of C V Civilization. Civilization. Let's create that. And uh, let's put that there. See that that thing. That's a multiple volume set of books. Huge. It'll take you. Maybe a couple of years to read, but yeah, start there. It's not easy. You gotta do that. Anisha says, Hello, sir. Hello, ma'am. Um, What else? They just says, How is Antarctica there in PD Rise map 1513? Did ancient people know more about the world than you think? Possible, possible. Uh, so I don't have the map with me right now, but yes, so there's a map from 1513, like they just says. Uh, in case that here is correct but yeah there's an ancient map that shows Antarctica or or some kind of landmass where Antarctica actually exists so what does it mean well the simplest explanation is that somebody in that during those days the 16th century actually knew that there was this continent called Antarctica and why is it so hard to believe people travel people want to explore uh, New horizons. They want to go where nobody else has gone before. That's one of the driving forces of human nature. Not all of us has that. Not all of us. Not all of us have that. But some of us have that desire, that that uh, the driving force that let me go and do something that nobody else has done. And such people risk a lot. So yeah, it's possible that somebody in Europe knew about this, and that's why it is there on the map. I mean, why else would? a landmass be placed on a map exactly where antarctica is so it's possible it's possible okay bai says have you watched avatar the last airbender and the legend of korra why don't we see any such animations on indian history the creators of the series nicely combine east and west concepts i haven't seen the last airbender i haven't seen the legend of korra i have i don't have the time to watch. I mean, I I love movies. I love uh, TV series as a kid. I used to watch a lot of uh, cartoons, anime, whatever. Uh, but I haven't seen any of these. No time, unfortunately. But I know that they are really well done, very well designed, very well uh, narrated, very interesting, engrossing stories. And they combine this east and west thing, mainly Japanese anime, with some. Blend of Japanese culture with Western Western elements and all that, concepts and all that. And the Japanese, you know, they 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 have that anime version of the Ramayana, beautifully made, better than anything Indians have made. So I don't know. So why do we not see such animations on in Indian history? Because nobody is bothering to do it. It takes time and money to do it, and all um, and whoever has the time and the money is isn't very fond of Indian culture. Look, who is creating content in india from an entertainment perspective i'm not talking about people on youtube i'm talking about the actual industry it's bollywood isn't it and the various ott platforms which put out uh, various uh, ott series and all that i don't watch any of those because the quality is mostly mostly abysmal some of them may be good but i i don't bother so look you give me 10 million dollars okay <laughs> I'm going to make it get it done. You need money to do that, you see. You need money to do it. So the money is in the wrong people's hands. And the people who are interested in this, they probably don't have the money or they don't have the know how and the wherewithal to do this. So I think as India becomes more prosperous, as the Indian economy grows, you will see more of this coming out. I would love to see a a ten season a new animated version of the Mahabharata and also the Ramayana, ten seasons, ten episodes per season. How about that? It'll be brilliant, animated. I mean, the, in animation you can actually visualize the world as it to, as it used to be. If you are doing live action, you have you need to have costumes, you need to have props, you need to have locations. It's very hard to bring out the truth of the ancient reality of India. In animation, you can do it. So I think. I would love to see a 10 season uh, new animated version of the Ramayana and the Mahabharata 10 episodes per season, total 100 episodes, I would love to see that You know, because it's such complex, rich and detailed story, the Ramayana as well as the Mahabharata. I'm not saying story as in, story as in fiction, it's history. But it, it's something that's so complex and it, it, it spans generations essentially, the entire uh, literature so that would that would take time to do i would love to see it i would love to see it well done and well made and respectful of indian culture i mean you know there are there is this there was a movie recently uh, i forget the name of the movie in which lord which was about the ramayan uh, who's that guy who plays ravan saif ali khan or whatever i, mean, I could not bring myself to go and watch the movie okay so there are these atrocious takes on the ramayana the mahabharat that bollywood comes up with so yeah i would love to see it happen you know animated versions in the future okay suraj Kanta says can nrc be the solution to the manipur crisis if not what else can it be uh look the Manipur, i i <laughs> I have an entire episode on Manipur. I also have a podcast with uh, I have a podcast on Manipur as well, in which I am not the main speaker, but I have an episode of Ask Abhijit about Manipur a two-hour episode. But let me answer the question. Look, first of all, we do understand to solve a problem you have to first understand how you have to understand the nature of the problem. To understand the nature of the problem you have to look into the history of the problem. How was this problem created? Manipur Right now, what's the situation in Manipur? Do we know where Manipur is, my dear Indian friends? Okay, let's find Manipur. We know where India is, go to the Far East of India, which they call the Northeast, And here we have the state of Manipur. It's a state today, it used to be a Kingdom. It was a large Kingdom. Parts of Tripura were part of it, much of Nagaland was part of it. Various parts of present-day Burma were part of the kingdom of Manipur, the Kabo Valley and and further. At some point in time, Manipuri King even conquered parts of Yunnan, present-day China. Okay. And Manipur has a very ancient history, at least 2000 minimum, maybe, maybe three and a half thousand, maybe more. And the Manipuri language has existed for 2000 years, at least. And which ethnic group speaks, is the originator of the Manipuri language? Is it the Nagas, the Metis, or the Kukis? It's the Metis. So the true Manipuris, the true natives, the true indigenous people of Manipur are the Metes and the Nagas. The Nagas are essentially the same people as the, as the Metes but they live in the, fo- in the hills. Long story. Now when did these foreign infiltrators enter Manipur? The process began in the, let's say in the middle of the 19th century. It all began with the root cause of the problem is bad succession once a king dies who comes to power next bad succession so bhagechandra he was he he elevated manipuri culture to to the high heavens okay whatever you see of manipuri culture today whatever is left is much of it is thanks to bhagechandra the king bhagechandra but when he died there was infighting between his sons as to who becomes the king so he so despite being a great uh, patron of culture bhagechandra messed up when it comes to succession And that is, that you cannot do. So because there was infighting between his sons, the Burmese were able to invade Manipur. Okay? And there was the seven years of devastation. After that, Manipur again regained her freedom. But the kings were weak and the British were involved in the Treaty of Yandabo. And that's how the foreign interference in Manipur starts. And the British became the main power in Manipur. The kings became essentially feeble and weak. And that's how, and then the British started started advising, let's say, the Maniburi King to bring in certain people from from what is currently Burma. These are the so, so, so very small numbers of these people who are living in Burma were brought in. The so-called cookies. Okay, it's not one ethnic group, it's a multitude multitude of various tribes. So the Tados, thado cookies, whatever. Um so the thing is this: that's when a very small number of these infiltrators were brought in by the British. The British forced the Manipuri king to do this, but even in 1900 to 1901, the percentage of these cookies was less than one percent in Manipur. Look at the British records. Look it up. Then more infiltration happened, and the Maitis fought a war against the British for independence in 1891. They lost, and as a result, the British punished them by confining all the Maitis to the Imphal Valley region, which is less than 10% of the entire region of Manipur today, present-day region of Manipur. And they settled in these cookies, these foreigners into southern Manipur, etc., where they exterminated the local forest people, the hill people, the Nagas, all of that where cookies live today, it was Naga territory. All the Nagas were expelled from there, violently, murderously. So today, the situation is that the border is open. Okay, it's long story short. And these people are just infiltrating through the border of Manipur and Burma and also via Mizoram. It's a whole different story there. So the situation today is that half of Manipur is under foreign occupation. And these these people are not even Burmese. They don't speak Burmese language, the Burmese language. They don't practice Burmese culture. They actually are from Yunnan in China. Okay, originally. Go back like three, four centuries. That's the situation. So what is the solution? The solution is to expel all infiltrators of, of India, first do an NRC, the NRC date should be 1949, 1949 should be the NRC date. Anybody who, who was not living in Manipur before 1945, or whose parents or grandparents were not living in Manipur before 1949, needs to go back to Burma, and then they Burma's problem. You can't have, demogra- I, I said earlier, demographic, demographic change is a national security threat. So that's what needs to happen and there is complete lawlessness in more than half of Manipur right now there have been horrific atrocities committed and i assure you that the government of india is aware of who uh, the perpetrators are who the culprits are and when so this problem will take minimum 20 years to solve we know who the culprits are, we know who the terrorists are, we know who the infiltrators are, and we know who the victims are. Okay. And the government also knows, when the hammer falls, it will fall heavily. But the problem will take minimum 20 years to solve. And the problem between that the indigenous people of Manipur face, I'm talking about the myth is zero leadership, zero cohesion, you need to solve your own problems first okay you can't expect outsiders I mean outside of Manipur to come and solve all your problems the problem was created by your king Bhagechandra because he did not choose the right successor he did not make it clear to everybody that who his choice of successor was that's every downfall of a kingdom or an empire is because of wrong succession And that's where the problem began. So Manipur has been in decline for the past 220 years. It all began with the the death of of Bhagichandra. And it's been a downhill slope ever since. And today the people of Manipur, the natives of Manipur, the Mites, are confined to about 6 or 7 percent of the territory of Manipur and more and more of their land is being taken over by foreigners. Minimum 20 years to solve the problem. NRC is a good step, but it has to, the cutoff date should be 1949. So that's what I can say about this in very brief, long, long big thing. But the indigenous people of Manipur are the Metis and the Nagas, nobody else. Okay. Uh, Keshav says, what can India do f- for protection at the Red Sea and Arabian Sea so that we can trade without any fear? And what do you think of Middle East cor- trade corridor? I Look, India needs to invest in a very powerful Navy. We keep on saying our, we keep on, let's say we, we keep on saying that the Indian Ocean region is our strategic backyard. Yeah. Well, you don't own a backyard unless you have a constant presence there. The rule, number one rule of territory is use it or lose it okay the chinese were able to take over Aksai Chin by just walking into it and building a road and india was not aware if you're not lo- using the territory you're going to lose it similarly in the indian ocean region if we don't have a major naval presence there at all times how can we say it's our strategic backyard words don't make it a strategic backyard you are going to take action so we need to invest in numbers numbers of naval assets instead of investing in huge gigantic aircraft carriers, we need to invest in smaller ships, large number of smaller ships that should be visible in the Indian Ocean region, in the Bay of Bengal, in the Sea of Svarashtra, in the Lakshadweep Sea and and, and south of that. Everywhere anyone comes, they should see an Indian naval presence everywhere, they should understand that now we we have come into India's strategic backyard and we see Indian naval assets everywhere. That can only happen if we invest in numbers, quantity of ships, quantity of naval assets. It doesn't have to be huge ships. It should be, can be small ships, missile boats. Missile boats can be small, but they are, they pack a deadly punch. You you build a missile boat worth 20 or 30 million dollars, which is not a lot when it comes to ships and you put three Brahmos missiles on that, it's a deadly, deadly asset to have. And give it an endurance of let's say 2000 kilometers and 30 days or 60 days or whatever and then see and, and build 200 of those it's not a lot of money actually for considering the big picture so india needs and india needs submarines so what india needs to do is that invest in large quantities of cheap but effective naval assets quantity as well as quality some some of these assets should be big like large warships destroyers frigates uh, corvettes, all that, but also smaller vessels as well. Large numbers, so every every time any anyone enters this region, the so-called uh, Arabian Sea, the Bay of Bengal, the Lakshadweep Sea, wherever, they should see the Indian naval presence at all times. It should be visible, it should be in your face. That's when you know it's your strategic backyard, that's when you have made it your strategic backyard. Otherwise the Chinese will come over. The Chinese are already making in- inroads in this region. So when so let's say the Chinese deploy 10 ships in this region. But India has 200 ships here. That's what we need to do. That's the situation we need to make happen. So then India can trade without fear and India can take care of all the security issues in this region. That's what India needs to do. India needs to invest in a massive Navy. It will take time, but we need to start. And I think we have started to some extent. So I am not entirely, you know, the level of disappointment is, is not that much. I'm actually kind of. I find the situation currently what we have currently kind of encouraging, a little bit. Not the way I feel about the education system. Uh, The India-Middle East-Europe trade corridor—it's kind of a non-starter right now because of the war in the Middle East, the Hamas-Israel war. Uh, So let's see uh, if if the situation calms down in the future, we can start it. But right now, it's it's non—it's not started right now. Okay. Okay, what is it? What is it? What else do we have? Shantan Singh says, how do you see the future of Hinduism as demographic change is draining Hindu cultures True. I think whatever demographic change we're talking about, whatever else we are seeing, I think it's a temporary thing. Our culture, what we call Hinduism, has existed for 10,000 years at least. I don't see, I mean, yeah, if you look at it from a pessimistic perspective, you may say, you may sometimes in your, in your darkest moments feel that Hinduism won't last hundred years. Some people say that I am by nature, not a pessimistic person. I think Hinduism or our culture, it will obviously evolve over time. I think it will last at least another 10,000 years. And I think it will, it will see a resurgence in the next 50 years, major resurgence. Okay, and that is all going to be tied in with India's economic and military rise. And India's military rise doesn't mean something that's hegemonic in nature. India has never been a hegemonic civilization, never. Okay, Uh, so India needs to become a powerful military, massively powerful military, but not for hegemonic purposes, just to ensure the status quo in the region and uh, to ensure justice in the indian subcontinent region and the overall civilizational neighborhood i think it's inevitable india needs to just take the next 20 years very carefully ensure that there's no major military conflict that we are involved we are embroiled in if we can navigate the next next 20 years carefully and successfully no one can stop us and with india's economic and military rise we will see a resurgence massive resurgence in indian culture okay and those who And even our neighbors, close neighbors, further neighbors, neither further apart, all of them will be strongly, strongly influenced by that and they'll be drawn towards that again. So it's going to happen. I am pretty sure of that. I am very optimistic. Let's see how it goes. Okay. Okay. What else do we have? What else do we have? Possibility of India-USA war in the future. Uh, no. No. So the US, even if it wants to go, if even if it wants to go to war with someone, it doesn't get involved directly. First of all, I don't see a conflict between the, India and the US. You may have these diplomatic problems and not sending Biden, even though he had accepted the Republic, uh, you know, Republic Day celebration and all that. that. sort of those tensions will persist. But the Americans, I don't think even if they want to go to war with India, they won't do it directly. They'll use a proxy. They have a wonderful proxy right next door to India, Pakistan. So why would they go to war with India directly? I mean, for decades, the Americans financed and funded Pakistani terrorism in India. So they won't do it directly. There will be no India-US war in the future. Okay, India will make sure that we, we have reasonably good relations. Of course, the US sees India as a long term threat long term like 20 year, 50 year horizon and they don't want India to rise. We know that very well. We understand that very well. The India, the US is not a long term well-wisher of India. That is very clear. We have to understand that properly. But I don't see a war happening. But they certainly will use proxies against India like they currently do. Like they currently do. See the situation in JNK right now. New spate of infiltrations right from pakistan occupied kashmir well recently asim munir the pakistan army chief was in the us like this week why does he have to be, be, go to the us he met the the foreign the secretary of state blinken he met victoria nuland okay nothing good can come out of come out of that the only utility that pakistan has for the us is as a counterweight to india as a proxy to to hurt india with. And there's another proxy in the east. The, the armed groups, rebel groups that are fighting the Burmese government. And they're also creating havoc in Manipur. And who supports the anti Burmese government rebels? Well, guess who supports them? The answer is very clear. So I don't see a war, but they will use all kinds of proxy forces against India. All right. Um, Yeah, of course. We we agree. That's a a major outcome that he would have wanted. Mr. Asim Munir. Rent smart, why doesn't the current Hindu government free Hindu temples? Listen, I don't know. I mean, I've always said this that India is a Hindu phobic apartheid state in which the indigenous religion and culture of India is the second is treated as second class or like some would say eighth class citizens and uh, every foreign every practitioner of a foreign religion has the right to mind their own business do things as they want run their own religious institutions but the indigenous culture of india is shackled and enslaved and all the proceeds of the donations to hindu temples are are stolen by the government and used for god knows what activities so uh, I think in certain states they have done this, but I think it needs to be done nationwide. So until that happens, we are, India is the world's most Hinduphobic nation. Okay, that is true. It's true. All right. Mm. What else do we have? Let's see. Okay, we have crossed two hours. I'll take maybe one or two questions maximum. And. Uh, Okay, what is this? Not a simp. Should India leave BRICS? It has become a dictator's hub with the possible integration of Saudi Arabia, UAE and Iran. Is there any possibility of Pakistan joining BRICS? Okay, look at BRICS. Brazil, India, China, South Africa and Russia. Apart from China, Brazil, we have good relations with them. Russia, more than good relations. South Africa, good relations. Nothing wrong with them. I don't care if a country has a dictator or not, how do I care? As long as they are friendly with me, I am happy. Saudi Arabia dictatorship, yes. Monarchy. Monarchy is a dictatorship. But we have excellent relations with Saudi Arabia. So what's your problem? UAE, great relations with India. Yeah, they have a monarchy, a dictatorship. So what? Iran, good relations with India, not bad. They have uh, Islamic uh, rule, dictatorship, whatever. So what? My I just don't understand why Indians are emotional. We don't look at the world affairs from a national interest perspective. We look at the world from a moralistic perspective. Oh, they don't have democracy, so we should not be their friends. Their dictator is a great friend of India. Their dictator helps us. His interests align with my interests. So why should I not like him? Why do we have to look at the world from a moralistic perspective? There is no right or wrong in geopolitics. There is no morality in geopolitics. It's only about prioritizing your national interest. Look at the US. They prop up dictators all over the world. Look at the number of dictators that have propped up over Africa. Look at the number of people they've assassinated in Africa because they went against US interests. The US itself is a two-party state, by the way. And both parties have the same foreign policy. So it's essentially a mono, it's actually nothing not very different from China, actually, the US. Okay? So how do I care if a certain nation has a dictator or whatever, or a king or a queen or whatever? As long as they their interests align with mine and they are friendly towards me, how do I care? I think we should be part of such organizations. The only issue is Pakistan joining BRICS, which China may push through. If that happens, then you know it's great. Any organization, any multilateral organization that involves it has India and Pakistan both as members is doomed to fail. Look at SARC. So if they bring Pakistan into BRICS, it's going to essentially paralyze BRICS. Okay. So if they want to kill BRICS, they should bring Pakistan in. That's how I see it. But when it comes to dictators, I just don't get India, the, the moralizing perspective of Indians oh it's not right, there is no democracy. what is democracy? where do you have democracy in the world? Do you have democracy in the US? a two-party state? just one step above a one-party system like China and North Korea? you call that democracy? both parties have the same foreign policy. one of them uses bombers to flatten cities with black colored bombers. the other one uses rainbow colored bombers to flatten cities but they do the same thing. Look beyond what the surface level of things. So I think India sh- India has excellent relations with the dictatorships in Saudi Arabia, UAE, Iran, Russia, whatever you want to say. And I'm happy we have excellent relationships with these dictatorial regimes because it's good for India. I don't care what they do in their country. And it doesn't mean that dictatorships are bad, by the way. India for the longest time had an imperial in, in, monarchy system. Who was Lord Ram? He was the king of India. What is a king? A king is a dictator by the way. Singapore, Lee Kuan Yew, he was a dictator but he was a great dictator, a benevolent dictator. So please stop looking at the world from a moralistic, simplistic sheep-like perspective. Please evolve your thinking. All right. All right. I will take one more question. We have gone way beyond the two hours. Anisha says CIA wants India to go towards Tibet if China goes for Taiwan. Is there a possibility of that? Uh, I don't know if CIA has said this officially. The Central Intelligence Agency of the US—they uh, are the troublemakers in the rest of the world. The FBI is the troublemaker within the US. So um, I don't know if they have said this. Okay, but if they want India to go towards Tibet if China go towards Taiwan. My question is, what is right for India? It is we in India who will decide. It is our government that decide what is best for India. Eventually, I think Tibet needs to be free. Of course it needs, needs to be free. I had this podcast with Tenzin Sunji in which we discussed the entire Tibet issue. I would recommend you watch it. Uh, eventually, we do want Tibet to regain its freedom. Tibet has historically always been free and it's gone, it's always been the buffer between India and China. Uh, so we do want this to happen, but is this the right time? Let's say China invades Taiwan in 2025. Is 2025 the right time for India to, re- to, to free Tibet? That is a calculation that has to be done based on a number of factors. The current strength of the Indian military. Do we have expeditionary warfare capabilities far from India? Will we be able to resupply re- the troops if they reach Urumqi or, or Lhasa or wherever? Can we actually make inroads rapidly across the, the Tibet- Tibetan plateau? the mountain warfare issue what will china's response be how will they be able to reinforce the you know send supplies they only have one rail line etc etc lots of factors to take into consideration will china be able to divert its military and fight a war in tibet lots of factors okay so uh, personally i'm not sure if 2024 25 25 hypothetically if it's the year of the invasion 51 i'm not sure if it may be the right time for india to make a move on tibet Maybe not, maybe yes, I don't know. Uh, so, and ideally we don't want a war for the next 20 years, ideally. Tibet is already like way, it's been a long time since it's been uh, annexed by China. Uh, so another 20 years won't do it too much harm. Ideally, we don't want a war for 20 years with anyone. Then nobody will dare to go to war with us if we if we grow our economy for, 20, for the next 20 years. So that's how I see it. All right, this is the end of today's session. Thank you so much for all of your questions. I apologize once again to all of you whose questions I could not take. Obviously, you have thousands of questions coming up over here. But yes, we will keep on doing this Ask you show. This is the final episode of this year. Next year, I'm going to do way more episodes than I've done this year. I may even do some surprise episodes, impromptu episodes, possibly. We'll see how it goes. All right, so thank you so much for your viewership, for your support. I really appreciate it. I wish you all a a great end of the year a great year ahead and we will meet again and, and next year you will see much more of me all right so take care have a great time and uh, keep raising your standards